0: Thankful to continue our study in the book of Jude. We are uh, in the home stretch of this short and powerful epistle. If you are able, please open to the book of Jude. This morning we'll be looking at the first half of verse 14. Today's sermon is entitled The Art of Prophesying. The art of prophesying, the beginning of Jude 14. The general objective for today's message is for apostates to be warned and for saints to be comforted. God has spoken judgment and blessings to those who gather in the church. From long ago, he's done this, up to this very day. If you're keeping notes, this is going to be in three sections. The general outline will be part one, falsely prophesying, part two, truly prophesying, and part three, the art of prophesying. Falsely prophesying, truly prophesying, and the art of prophesying. Now that I trust you're open to Jude, for context, I want to start reading in verse 8 as we approach verse 14. Jude is going to begin verse 8 um, in light of what he has already given as illustrations, if you remember, of God judging in the past. Judging the Israelites in the wilderness who did not believe, judging those of Sodom and Gomorrah judging the angels. In those three illustrations, I would have you recall, it was judgment upon the Jews, judgment upon the Gentiles, and judgment upon angels. There is no category in which God's judgment does not meet. Starting in verse 8. Yet in the same way these men Also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and things which they know by instinct. Like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And here is our verse. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied let's ask the Lord to help us father in heaven we thank you that you have brought us here this morning to hear you speak to us through your word Lord grant me the ability to be your mouthpiece and to teach what you have prepared for us this morning may it be according to spirit and truth for the good and betterment of your people and for your eternal, everlasting glory. We ask your help in this because we need it, and we trust that you will give it in Jesus' name. And we all say, amen. Well, one of the foremost Christian philosophers of recent past was a brother named Francis Schaeffer. Being taken to glory in 1984, Schaeffer is remembered as an American evangelical theologian, philosopher, and Presbyterian pastor. Schaefer had a strong desire to engage the culture and believe that the word of God was sufficient to correct the theological modernism, which is liberalism, of his day, happening within the walls of the church. But he also believed the scriptures were a two-edged sword that were able to defend from attacks on the outside, of the walls of the church. I believe, and I trust you do as well, that Francis Schaeffer was right. Brother Francis was also a prolific author. He wrote some of the most poignant and thoughtful works on subjects such as a Christian view of philosophy and culture, a Christian view of the Bible as truth, a Christian view of spirituality, a Christian view of the church, and a Christian view of of the West. Now if you listen to Schaefer talking in the late 1970s and the early 80s about where he thought our Western culture was headed and you can find those audio recordings readily on the internet you might feel inclined to conclude with many he was prophetic but this raises some questions was Francis Schaefer a prophet What is a prophet? Are there prophets today? Does God even speak? Is he still speaking? If so, what has he said? And what is he saying today? Well, today in our study in Jude, I believe the Holy Spirit will reveal that God is a God who speaks. And those who gather with the church are comforted by his voice, but those who scatter from her, or worse, dare to attack her, have been warned of their coming destruction. Now, you may have noticed in our reading, I stopped halfway through verse 14 because we are going to be looking at just the first part. And much of what will come about in the second part of the verse will have to do with the book of Enoch, this apocryphal book which Jude is quoting. We're not going to touch upon such matters per se in this sermon. I just want to look at the beginning part of this verse 14, that it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. So this brings us to part one of today's sermon, falsely prophesying. The false prophets never spoke for God. The false prophets never spoke spoke for God. I don't mean those who actually spoke for God who were not indeed prophets in the literal sense, and we'll cover what this means as we go on. I mean those who seek to hurt the church, those who seek to do her destruction from within. They never spoke for God. And this is where Jude has us begin in verse 14 where he says this, It was also about these men. It was also about these men. Jude here is setting up another contrast, this time between these men and Enoch. And I also believe between these men and Adam. What Jude is subtly contrasting has to do with the false teachers that he has been warning us about. I would remind you of the the greater context of Jude. Looking at verse 3, this is the controlling statement. This is the authorial human intent and even the divine intent of this whole epistle. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. For, this is the because statement, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the occasion for the whole epistle. And this is what Jude is contending for. The faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. But what's more, brothers and sisters, Jude is earnestly laboring that you would contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. As those who gather in the church. As I mentioned concerning Francis Schaeffer, believing that there were attacks from within the church and also from without the church. This is true today. And this will always be the case until our Lord returns. When you think of a battle, when you think of a war or a confrontation, you often think about one side who is defending and attacking against another side. And oftentimes you may think, of a literal battle where there are bunkers and there are walls and there are dividing lines between an opponent and you. But the church has a two-pronged attack. We are not just guarding against attacks from without. We're also guarding from attacks from within. This has always been the case. And again, brothers and sisters, will always be the case until our Lord returns. And so Jude is reminding us now about the condemnation about those who had crept in unnoticed. John, in his epistle, remember, he talks about those who left the church, who evidenced that they were never truly of the church. Peter, in the parallel book, talked about those who would be in the church, who would infiltrate, that they were coming. The Apostle Paul warned about those savage wolves who would rise up from your own number. And here Jude is saying that they are here. They are now in the church and that we must all contend for the faith. Once and for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because these savage wolves would not. In fact, these savage wolves would twist the very scriptures not only to their own destruction but to those who would follow them. And so here I believe Jude has set up the contrast between Enoch and these false prophets who never spoke for God. I have you recall verse 8. Yet in the same way, Jude says, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. From that, we learn something ontological about these false teachers. We learn that they not only defile their flesh, which is pointing to their sexual promiscuity within the congregation, believe it or not, taking advantage of widows, but that they reject authority. We had observed that that would be no surprise for those who hate God to reject His authority. They revile glories, whether they be civil authorities, whether they be authorities in the church, or as I mentioned before, even the apostles themselves. But what do they use to bolster their claims? What do they use to convince people in the church that they ought to be listened to? It was what Jude said previously in verse 8. Yet yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming... And we talked about how that dreaming points to visions that they claim they received. This dreaming points to their prophetic nature. That they have a fast track to God. That God is using them as a mouthpiece to speak to the church. We made a beeline to Jeremiah 23, 25. That prophesied, a true prophet, Jeremiah, prophesying that these men would come and what these men's business was all about. Jeremiah 23, 25. Jeremiah says, I have heard what the prophets have said. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. And here's what Judah is saying. These men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. These are the false prophets in the church. In Jeremiah 14, 14, he says more, Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Now we read that and we say, well, that was back in the Old Testament. That was back when there were false prophets running around. Brothers and sisters, there are false prophets running around today and they're in the church. Another legitimate prophet, one who truly spoke for the Lord, The prophet Zechariah says in chapter 10, verse 2, For the teraphim, that is household gods, speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions, and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. These false teachers who have been rising up in the church claim to be shepherds, but are feeding on the sheep. We talked about that in our previous sermon. It's a grotesque picture of a shepherd not caring for the flock, but hurting and killing and destroying the flock. This is what our Lord said about those who would come in another way, not through the door, which is himself that they come to seek and to destroy. We must be on guard even within the walls of the church, figuratively speaking. Because the church battles on two fronts, outside the walls but also inside the walls. Again, we saw in horrific detail in our introduction last week or last time we were in Jude, the terrible reality of savage wolves that were brought to light from within the Southern Baptist Convention. Those preying on those who gather with the church, even little ones. It was a horrifying picture. It is a horrifying picture. But such men exist in the church today. You may recall, or you may have heard the news from this week, that there was another false teacher from Los Angeles this time who was preying on his flock who was just found guilty in court. He pled guilty in court. He called himself the apostle. The apostle. And he used that authority in his congregation to prey on the flock. We'll be talking more about apostles and prophets in this message. But Jude's plea for us today is to contend earnestly for the faith because it's needed in our own day. But Jude is also contrasting these men, these false teachers, more broadly. And to see this, we have to look closer at this man named Enoch. So let us now look at the next part of this verse that it was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam. Before we see the intended contrast, we have to ask this question. Who is Enoch? Well, if you're able, turn to Genesis chapter 5. It is here that we first learn of Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, where it discusses the descendants, the genealogy starting at Adam. In fact, it starts out in chapter 5 saying, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And we have a genealogy. And I want to pick up in the genealogy starting in verse 18. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. So the first thing we learn about Enoch is that he is the son of Jared. He is the son of Jared. But if we keep reading, the Lord has something more to tell us about Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he, that is Enoch, had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That is a statement that probably sticks with most when we think about who Enoch was. That is a very memorable statement. Lots of questions about what it means that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. The narrative then transitions into his son, Methuselah. Methuselah, who lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived seven years 182 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. And then we quickly come to Noah. We are quickly approaching the flood. So Enoch, the son of Jared, who walked with God, who lived 365 years and then was not, for God took him. That's what we learn from Genesis chapter 5 about Enoch, that he walked with God. Now, Jude is giving us a little bit of a commentary on Enoch when he says, oh, and by the way, he is in the seventh generation from Adam. Now, if you were thinking interesting that Enoch lived 365 years. I've heard that number 365 before, and you might start to think symbolically. Well, you'd be on the right track because Jude is making a big deal that Enoch is actually the seventh generation from Adam. And to the Jewish readers, that would be a big deal. Enoch is number seven if you count Adam himself. You have Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, and then Enoch is number seven. Now for those who were in our study of Daniel, you would remember that the number seven is used symbolically as a picture of completeness and fullness and perfection. This is why the Holy Spirit is symbolically called the seven spirits before the throne of God in the book of Revelation. Where would this number of seven gained this understanding of completeness or fullness or perfection? Where's the first place you hear about seven in the scriptures? That God made the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. It is no wonder that our work week is seven. And it's also no wonder that those who fear and Desire the destruction of the church would war against the number seven, even as it concerns the work week. It may interest you to know that in the French Revolution, they tried to make an 11-day week. Why? Because they hated God and they wanted to dispel ordering our lives around this number seven. It led to destruction. We know what happened in the French Revolution. Heads, not figuratively, but literally began to roll. And so it was that the 11-day work week was thrown away, and we go back to 7. They even had, in the French Revolution, a new calendar set up where the French Revolution was year one because they wanted to get away from B.C. and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. But I digress. This is not a history lesson in the French Revolution. But all to say... Men hate God. And even they, with the common grace that has been given to them, see these patterns that are baked in to reality. But Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. That should immediately, in the Jewish mindset, say he's important. He is someone who illustrates in some way perfection, some way completeness, And it is no surprise that the name Enoch means someone who is learned, someone who is instructed, could be even pointing to the idea that he spoke God's word. Would that be of any surprise to us, considering he walked with God? The author of the book of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul, I believe, says this, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he ordained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So the Holy Spirit is pleased to give us a little further commentary on Enoch in the New Testament as he unpacks what he had written in the Old. That Enoch was pleasing to God and did not see death and was taken by God. Enoch is in that hall of faith. Preceding Noah. So this is the contrast that I see. We're now ready to see it. That these men are contrasted with Enoch. How so? Because these men walked away from God. These men, these false prophets in the church, these wolves in sheep's clothing, walked away from God. But Enoch walked with God. Genesis chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 11. Both Adam and Enoch were prophets, true prophets, who spoke for God. But these men speak lies, but Enoch spoke truth. Remember what Jude said about these false teachers? They have gone the way of who? Cain. They've gone the way of Cain, but Enoch went the way of Abel. Another interesting contrast, the godly line versus the cursed line. But get this, both Cain and Abel came from Adam, did they not? And both of these men are in the church. But another contrast, these men do not just contrast with Enoch, they also contrast with Adam and Enoch. Both Adam and Enoch were prophets, I've said as much. But get this, Adam was a type of who? Christ. Adam was a type of Christ. But who was Enoch a type of? Was he a type at all? Well, I would argue that Enoch was a type of the church. Well how so? Well he walked with God. He was pleasing to God. Surely the sacrificial death of Christ which was projected back to the Old Testament the benefits available to someone like Enoch. Enoch was covered by the blood of Christ, was clothed in Christ's righteousness because Enoch believed no doubt the promise that was given to Adam that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But what's more as I think Enoch is a type of the church in that line that keeps commentators scratching their heads. What does it mean that Enoch was not to be found because God took him? That he didn't see death because God took him? Do we learn anywhere else in the scriptures, especially the New Testament, where godly saints will be taken out of this world and will not see death. That doctrine known as the rapture, that doctrine known as the meeting of our Lord when He comes in His parousia. So I think Enoch, in a symbolic way, is contrasting these men with Christ in the church. Fascinating. Fascinating. So much packed into this one little expression that Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam when you contrast it with these men. These men. And so now we've talked about falsely prophesying these false prophets who never spoke for God in the church. We've talked about truly prophesying that these true prophets, Enoch and Adam, spoke for God. Now I want to talk about the art of prophesying. The third heading. That Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Well, one word, prophesied, the question arises. We asked it in the introduction. What is a prophet. What is a prophet in the first place? If you're able, let's go to the, I think, quintessential text on what it means to be a prophet in the Old Testament. You know where it is? Exodus. Turn to Exodus chapter 4. Certainly we have prophets before this. Certainly we have prophets after this. But this is such a clear portion of scripture that I think details to us what a prophet is Exodus chapter 4 with a concluding remark from chapter 7 but just turn to Exodus chapter 4 if you're able and listen to the word of God starting in verse 10 when Moses is being commissioned by our, by our Lord Yahweh Starting in verse 10 of chapter 4 of Exodus. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I? Yahweh, the Lord. Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. In other words, Lord, anybody but me. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth, in his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as a god To him. You shall take your hand, take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. And I'm going to just say the first two verses out of chapter seven. You don't need to turn there. Then the Lord said to Moses See, I made you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. So what is a prophet? Well, what is clear from this section in Exodus is that in a general sense, a prophet is a spokesman for God. Someone who is God's mouth. And Jude is telling us that Enoch prophesied. Now, there are varieties of Old Testament prophecy, no doubt. There are those prophets who are known as theocratic messengers sent to the nation of Israel. You may have heard of this as the school of the prophets, someone who is commissioned as a prophet. But we also have those in Scripture who are called seers. Now, you may recall Balaam in our Old Testament reading this morning from Numbers, he had visions of the Almighty. That's another category. Those who have visions, seers. But we also have those who are just ordained by God to foretell what shall come to pass. A very interesting one, if you recall, in the Gospel of John had to do with the high priest as they were plotting to kill our Lord Jesus Christ. It says this in John chapter 11. You don't need to turn there. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know that nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. What is he saying? Kill Christ. Better for one man to die than for our whole nation to perish. Now, John says this, a little commentary on that. Now, he, that is Caiaphas, did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Oh, how we saw that being a parallel text to the epistle of 1 John where he says that he, that is Jesus, is not our propitiation alone, but the propitiation for the whole world. Not that Christ died for the whole world, but that he died for all the children of God in Israel and scattered abroad, finding its Context in John chapter 11 with Caiaphas, the high priest who wanted Jesus killed, who prophesied. Do you see the, the breadth of the term prophesied? It can mean so many different things in context. It must be determined who and what we are talking about. And I want to go a little deeper about this covenantal structure even of prophets. You may have heard the Old Testament referred to this, Moses and the prophets. Have you ever heard the New Testament referred to as the apostles and the prophets? Again, much to be said here, but Pastor Perkins taught us out of Ephesians chapter 2, Something very important on this point. If you recall, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household. Listen to the next verse having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, theologically, all prophets point to Christ. He is the last and greatest prophet. Paul is saying in Ephesians that he is himself the chief cornerstone. He's not just a prophet He is a priest and a king. I would have you go back to our confession on the mediator of Christ, the mediation of Christ, where he is spoken of as prophet, priest, and king. Just like Adam, by the way, who was a type of Christ, was a prophet, priest, and king. But we see this type throughout the whole Old Testament, where God speaks to his people. And the prophet is the one who is God's mouthpiece used to speak for God. So I asked a question in the beginning of today's message. Are there prophets today? How would you answer that question? I talked about the grievous report in the news this week about that man in a church who was taking advantage of those in the church and he called himself the apostle. Are there apostles today? Now this sermon isn't necessarily about unpacking the idea of continuationism or cessationism whether there are supernatural gifts in the church today, whether there is tongue speaking in the church today. But we have to ask ourselves the question in the context of this sermon, are there prophets today? I listened to two debates this week between someone who is charismatic, very well spoken, by the way, and in many senses very theologically sound, but is convinced by Scripture that there are prophets today. This is what these men in Jude were claiming to be with their dreams. Certainly there were prophets in the church at one point in time, right? The New Testament is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And those are indeed New Testament prophets. If you read the book of Acts, you will hear about prophets and prophetesses. Even the seven daughters of one who prophesied. There's that number seven again. Because why? Why were there prophets in the New Testament at all? Here's the point, brothers and sisters. This is just to put in your toolbox of why there are no prophets in the church today in this sense of the apostles and the prophets because the canon is closed the canon is closed why were there prophets in the first place because the canon was what? open God was giving revelation is God still giving revelation that way? no, why? again because the canon is closed. Here is the Achilles heel of the charismatic movement which argues for apostles and prophets today. Why then is the canon closed? If there were prophets and apostles today, the canon would be open. If I stood up here and said, I have a word from the Lord. Get your pencils out because it's authoritative and you better Listen to it and obey it. Another reason why there are no prophets and apostles today. We read about it in Ephesians 2. That we are in God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now I don't think any of us in here have ever built a house. And correct me if I'm wrong, if anybody has, it would be quite the feat And I'd be quite impressed. But if you have, how many foundations do you lay when you're building a house? Do you keep laying the foundation over and over and over again? No, you build a foundation and you build on top of it. Anybody here remember our New Testament reading this morning? Did it have anything to do with this? Did you hear this come up at all? Do you remember? Let's go back. I bookmarked it. Listen to the Apostle Paul speaking now to the Corinthians. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. Now, who's the man being spoken of in 1 Corinthians? Is it you? Is it every Christian? Rome would say it is. And Rome would say this work and the consequence of this work being straw, being burnt, dump in fire actually points to something called purgatory. Brothers and sisters, the context in 1 Corinthians is that of the minister of God's word. Those who are teachers in God's church. Those who speak for God, who are laying on top of the foundation which was already laid by the apostles and the prophets. Which brings me to my last point. There are prophets in the Old Testament... There are prophets in the New Testament, but is there prophecy in the church today? I've already said that there are no prophets like those who were in the early church because the canon was open. But is there prophecy in the church today? I'll ask it it this way. Are there miracles in the church today? Yes or no? Yes. There are miracles in the church today. Praise God. Every time someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that's a miracle. How about miracle healings? Has anybody ever been prayed for and healed? Yes. We're called as ministers of the gospel to lay our hands on the sick and to pray for them because the prayer of a righteous man avails much. But here's the catch. Are there miracle workers in the church today? No. Are there prophets in an office in the church today? No. Is there prophecy in the church today? Yes. Where? Well, first of all, the book of Revelation is a prophecy. The whole book is a prophecy. So there is one way where there is prophecy in the church today. But I believe in our providential reading in 1 Corinthians, there is something more that Paul is telling us a way that there is prophecy in the church today. And some of you who are well-read with the Puritans may have caught the title of today's sermon, The Art of Prophesying, written by a very uh, gifted brother who is known as the father of Puritanism. And he wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying. Now listen to this. Quoting William Perkins, there are two parts to prophecy, he says, preaching the word and public prayer. Have you ever thought about prophecy being the preached word and public prayer? For the prophet, that is the minister of the word, has only two duties. One is preaching the word and the other is praying to God in the name of the people. When we have our corporate prayer today, when Pastor Perkins led us in the corporate prayer with all of us, brothers and sisters, that was a form of prophecy, rightly understood. As I'm preaching now to you the Word of God, this is a form of prophecy, rightly understood. Perkins goes on The minister of the Word has only two duties one is preaching the word and the other is praying to God in the name of the people and he quotes Romans 12:6 saying having prophecy let us prophesy in proportion to our faith Romans 12:6 Perkins goes on to say this preaching the word is prophesying in the name and on behalf of Christ through preaching those who hear are called into the state of grace and preserved in it God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, us meaning the ministers. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5. God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which He called you by our gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 1. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Proverbs 29. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher. Romans 10:14. What we need to do is be familiar with these categories, brothers and sisters, that there are no apostles and prophets in the church today, lest we be led astray by those false teachers who have been on display sadly even in the public eye these past few weeks but we must also realize that we worship a God who has spoken and who is speaking even now in your sitting. I want to conclude with 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn there if you're able. This is the last section I'll have you turn to. 1 Peter chapter 2 to bring home this idea that not only is there... Prophecy rightly understood in the church today. And that Enoch was a prophet rightly understood before the flood. But that God uses this prophecy even in your lives today. Lord willing, even in your hearing this morning. First Peter chapter 2. I want to start at verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, here it is, through the living and enduring word of God. How many in here own a Bible? Probably everybody. How many who go to church bring a Bible? Almost everybody. Here's a... Here's a question that hurts when I think about how often it's neglected. How many Bibles do you own? Brothers and sisters, it is a novel thing that we own the Bible personally. It is a novel thing. What I mean by novel is a rather new invention that you have a Bible sitting on your shelf at home. It is certainly a blessing, a tremendous avalanche of riches that you own more than one copy of a bible in your home the church for many many centuries existed without personal bibles you wanted to hear the word of god one of two places you go to the congregation on the lord's day and you hear the minister of god preach it to you or number two you store it up in your what heart are you storing god's word in your heart Or have you, like me, taken for granted the fact that we have Bibles in surplus on the shelves in our homes and then have chosen not to store it up as much as you should in your heart? One faithful minister once said that your heart is like a well and the water of the word is the water that should be in that well for when hard times come, brothers and sisters, and no doubt they already have, you put the bucket Into the well, and you draw up what? If you have scripture stored in your heart, you draw that up. But if you do not have the word stored in your heart, what are you drawing up when you need it so badly, when you need refreshed, and you don't have the Bible written in front of you or access to it, and you drop that bucket into the well of your heart? What are you bringing up? Too often, it is mud, a little bit of water. Mixed with dry soil. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the preached word. We thank you for the many prophets that have come before us, beginning with Adam in the garden, culminating in our great high priest and king and final prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are all, by faith, engrafted into him by the Holy Spirit, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us hearts of flesh that seek your truth. Let us, by that same grace, seek to store your word up in our hearts all the more, that we may all prophesy your word to those who need to hear and bless the ministers of the word in this congregation, that we can serve it for the protection of and the glory and the good of your people and the glory of you alone who gives it. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh. And we all say, Amen.